There's no way out I've got to show them what I've become There's no doubt Got my back to the wall And I'm still hanging on There's no way out I've made my choices where I belong There's no doubt When the road gets tough I keep my head strong Strong, strong Troubles in my life have been all the same With a strain in my mind getting hurt again There's a pain in my heart but it's just a game Gotta get over it, won't go insane Won't achieve anything while I'm down Don't wanna give out my heavyweighted frown I'm stopping this now, I'ma turn it around Heaven's on the ground, now I'm looking at the clouds Gonna make a change like a change, bigger getting changed Gonna stay the same with my mind frame rearranged Gonna wish the blue out my mind and my eyes Was I blind in my mind? Cause that was old times Cause I'm starting fresh with a clear vision You can even spell my name in optimism Just track the M's, an I and the P And then what you're left with is me Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show. Tonight with me, I have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Bay Logan. He is, he is a legend amongst Hong Kong cinema. He's a writer, a producer, a director. Uh, he's done just about everything, and we're going to talk tonight about uh, his new book, as well as right. a new film he is working on. And maybe I'll be able to get in a few of my questions about uh, Lady Blood Fight, because that movie was just coming out on video on demand, I think, the last time you were on here. And I, like, bought Correct. it the, yeah. the first day that it came out. It, it hit Voodoo, and I got it right away and watched it, and I thought it was a masterpiece. So I wanted I want to oh. mention I wanted to mention that to you right away because I really I mean I was geeking out a lot during that movie I kind of like I kind of like is, thought, this is, this oh, I know where he's going on. here This is why I love coming on this show This is why I love coming on this show It's like you know reenergizes me to get back into the fray I'm, and, I'm and a, you say living legend I feel like a living legend sometimes but uh, uh, well you you also had I mean I mean and you were also doing your uh, Ironically, you were doing that 36 Chambers of Kung Fu podcast as well. And that's, and that's what the, you decided to do. I did, we did your... a podcast for a while. I need to do, I need to do it again. My, uh, biggest challenge the last year has been really just, um, time because I mean, I went back into doing books again, rebooted, booted my website. We actually produced five movies in the last year. Um, and I have five kids. And so um, it's a lot of lot of things to do. And uh, I was still doing DVD commentaries for our released.com site. And the podcast kind of fell by the wayside. But uh, several people have mentioned to me how it would be fun to do one from my perspective. And apparently, I don't think there's anybody from Hong Kong talking about doing a podcast talking about the Hong Kong industry and the Chinese film industry. I so kept waiting for the I kept waiting for the show where you were going to have uh where you go, were going to have Donnie Yen on talking about some stuff and that episode easily, never it came. Was easily, 
it would be easily done. You know, what tends to happen with me is that, um, you know, I have a lot of irons in the fire and, um, a lot of the times it's down to having the right partner. And when we, for the movies, for the film production, my partner is a gentleman from Beijing, my brother in arms, James, James Nan. Without James, we couldn't have made all these films. And there was another gentleman called Toby von Reisick who was helping me with the podcast. And Toby moved to LA and got in, he's been studying and doing his own films in LA. So we kind of like just, you know, were continents apart. So it was lack of that other point person that, uh, you see, you think I'm so extraordinary, but behind every every supposedly great man is a great woman or an, a great other guy kind of like helping them. So in everything that you're talking about, I kind of needed help. I think the podcast, I lost my, my, my right hand on that, unfortunately. Well, oh, yeah, and he, sa- and he sound, and he definitely sounded like he was getting a lot out of it too, and you could tell he was really enjoying it as well. Yeah. So I was, so yeah. I was, oh, I was looking yeah. forward to him, to more, cause for a while you had yeah. him, you had him going consistently, you had done it like, you had done it like, I, I think know. it was like a couple weeks in a row, well, and I'm like, wow. The, yeah, one of the, one of the, the, you know, few nice things about getting older is that you inevitably meet all these bright young folk who come in to the industry in various areas. And um, part of my responsibility, I think, is to identify who has potential. And as much as I can use whatever I've learned and whatever influence I have to try to get them a platform to do what they want to do. So that was definitely the case with Toby, with my son, with, 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 with you know, when you get to my age, everybody tends to be younger. So it's like... Uh, it's a benefit of, of staying the course. Yeah, I mean, you had yeah. one of one of your podcasts that you did that I, I found very awesome was the one where you actually had it where you were teaching. You were teaching kung fu. You were actually teaching a class in That's one of right. the in one of the episodes, and That's you right. and you went we into a, your among the other things I did this last year. We kind of revamped the kung fu school, and I was I've always been training, but I got more serious and. Uh, Went back into entering into a tournament in the in the seniors division, which was a great experience. I hadn't competed for like probably twenty. Maybe there's a senior. There's a senior. There's a senior. There's a senior division for the kung fu championships. Do you know That's what? In in, in Hong Kong, the way things are now, it's either extremely junior or extremely senior. It's the middle area of the guys that you have in the states. All these twenty to thirty year old bright guys were missing. We have kids who are forced to do kung fu by their parents, and we have the older retirees and the middle-aged people training. So it's kind of one or the other. But I, yeah, I said, I entered. The, there's a lady called Lei Fai who uh, was in Iron Monkey. She's like the scar-faced woman in Iron Monkey, and she has a kung fu school. And my daughter, my wife trained there, and my daughter was training with uh, with her. And um, so she had a tournament, and uh, again, looking for stuff to do. This year, I was like, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to enter this tournament, and uh, they had a division where you could you could do um, Honga forms, and I did Fu Hok Sang Ying, and I won a won a gold medal. So I was like, "Yes, I <laughs> like came back to the fray." But we have a kung fu school, absolutely right. That was another thing that I was involved with this year. Yeah, I, I kind of fit. You, I, I realize how busy I am when I talk to you. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. live my life every day. When I talk to you, I'm thinking, Christ, I have twins. I should be. I have two sets of twins. I should be twins. Yeah, and I think the time before that, you were like on the set of. At one point, you were on the set of um, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon Two. You were. 
right. you were work, you were doing that. I think you were ta- I think you were talking to me from New Zealand. Yeah, I think you were That's talking right. to me from New Zealand. It was it was what a fan- uh, that was four years ago. It was a fantastic uh, life experience being in New Zealand and to write and produce a movie of that scale. I mean, and then this year it's been more a run of um, five smaller films, but that shot in China. But that, in a way, has been really interesting because the difference is, I mean, uh, several people ask me, well, you know, why were you doing these lower budget movies in China when you've done films? And there's several reasons, but one interesting aspect to it is when you do a big studio film like Crouching Tiger was, there's so many voices, there's so many executives, there's so much influence. I mean, that movie was done with Netflix and it was like you and another American company. And it's very hard. I remember being on the set and you'd be getting like rewrites by the, by the minute, by the, list by the minute, you know, the actors are waiting and we'd be getting rewrites approved. By an executive in New York, and it was just, it was difficult. It was, it, it was great to be operating at that level, but day by day, it was hard because you didn't feel that anybody really had creative responsibility on the set. Day by day, it was like a committee. And as somebody once said, you know, Camel is a horse uh, made by a committee. <laughs> but the, exactly. the, the film itself came out, came out okay and did well, and, and so it was, I, I enjoyed doing it, and I, I think people enjoyed watching it. But the movies we're doing now, which is like Dark Soul, which I directed, Vixen, which I produced, uh, Lady Detective Shadow, which I produced. Um, the wonderful thing about it is the limitation is your own talents, your own ability, your own experience, your own work ethic, which I really like the idea of butting up against my own level of ability, my own, um, you know, kind of energy. And that's the limitation. And at the end of the day, having no excuses. So you just go well, this is good because I made it good and this is not so good and it's my fault, which I think is is really a great way to be as a creative person to have that freedom. So these films that you're making now are are definitely not being made by committee. Definitely not. No, this committee is James and I are the only two people who have a vote and the business structure is such that we kind of have the money to make the movie that we want to make. We have to get the script approved by the... Uh, Central Chinese government censorship department. If anybody out there hearing this has the ambition to do, to write a script and make a movie, write to me, care of you, and I'd be happy to, or just find me at, uh, uh, you know, on my Facebook and all the other media things that we have. But I, I'm looking for new, new scripts because that, of course, is the core to anything. I wrote the last two films, um, and then my partner is writing, has written the next few movies. I, actually, next week, I start on, um, it's a female version, or, sorry, it's a Chinese version of Million Dollar Baby called Loser is the Winner. Oh, wow. So, um, okay. And I'm acting in that. If that's not too strong a word, I play like the boxing coach. So I've got a, so I've got the grizzly beard that you can see in my recent posts. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you're, yeah, you're taking the craft seriously. That's, <laughs> that's what that is. I, yeah. I, I, I think what it, I think what it is is you know when you when you're as limited as me as an actor you need all the props you can get so I'm like okay give me a beard a limp maybe a parrot on my shoulder you know anything but I did actually train as an actor when I was a younger man and um, the people at the acting school who were with me I thought were going to take the world by storm and as far as I can see none of them ever worked and somehow with my limited and I I mean this sincerely limited acting skills did about fifteen movies now so. It's a funny business. 
And, you know, so are you able to talk a little bit about the movie that you're directing? Or Absolutely, you're directing? I can that, see, that's the other great thing about not being a whole <laughs> studio. I, I always used to get in trouble for talking about Crouching Tiger, talking about whatever. My movies and what I'm doing, um, I can talk about pretty much anything. So, you know, there's no, no, no limitation except limitation. So you have no, you have no, you have no NDAs on your, on no, your projects. None. Uh-uh. That's great. No, I probably, that's I mean, great. Don't even, I'm not even a big fan. You know, it's interesting, just before I answer your question. I mean, it's interesting today. I think all of this struggle to um, kind of stop people talking about creative, creative projects now online is like putting the genie back in the bottle. You have to embrace it. It's impossible now to say to people, don't talk about what you're doing. Don't share images of what you're doing. Art has become inclusive. It's been, been something that we're all involved with and that we all share. And you have to figure out as a filmmaker, as a producer myself, as a filmmaker, how do you use that to further your aim of creating good work and getting it out into the marketplace? And I think all that stuff with the NDAs, people often ask me to sign NDAs for scripts they send me. And I always joke about the fact there's an, there's a kind of inverse ratio. The better the script, the less likely you have to sign an NDA to read it. It's a, uh, it's a funny, it's a funny kind of construct, but no, Dark that- Soul, actually, the one I, the movie I directed was a film that I had written, um, Years and years ago, for um, uh, Donnie Yan to co-star in with Christian Slater, and we had it in development at Shaw Brothers, and this was after Donnie had directed Legend of the Wolf, uh, which I was not involved with, but um, greatly admired his work as a director on that film. Uh, I did a film later with him, Ballistic Kiss, but um, we were looking for a studio to work with, and it seems like another era. But Run Run Shaw was still alive and still looking at films. And he, he watched Legend of the Wolf and said, you guys can develop a movie here. And we had some money to develop it. But the I think the infrastructure at Shaw Brothers at that time was not geared towards making films. So it fell by the wayside. I know I'm like anybody as a writer, been quite prolific. And I've written more films than I than I got made. So when um, this opportunity came up this year to do a string of films in China, I just went back into my archive and came up with five pitches from films that I hadn't made. And we presented those to the government censors and the ones that got approved, we put into development. And those that didn't get approved, we kind of I put back into the files. And Chinese Heart was the first one was Chinese Heart was the original title. Now it's called The Dark Soul. Um, And it was interesting because when we came to cast it, I actually it was originally written for a you know, a Caucasian, you know, for a European guy, Christian Slater. And then when I came back to do the movie, I was reaching out to people I knew who I thought might fit the bill and they were busy or they were not responsive or they whatever. Gary Daniels. (laughs) Say what? Gary Daniels. (laughs) Gary, Gary passed. Gary passed on doing the movie. See, I can really talk about anything now. I don't know quite why I called him up. I think I got him on a bad day. And Gary, oh. who I was indeed, indeed somebody that I thought of, and I think Kevin, Kevin Brewerton, who ended up starring in the movie, will not mind me telling the story. But I had two projects. One was um, called uh, was was Dark Soul. The other one's a film called Harlem Goes East, which um, is about a, an African American person having an adventure in China. So I had that one earmarked for Kevin uh, to do, given that he's uh, mixed race or he's African American, and so he was going to do that one. And the, the idea of 
the original idea of Dark Soul was that it would be a um, uh, a kind of a Caucasian, like a white American who's a complete fish out of water among all the Chinese in China. And yeah, Gary uh, didn't respond. It was not interested, I don't think, in doing the film. I, I'm not sure why. And then there were some other people that we talked to who, didn't, who passed. And then I was riding the Hong Kong subway with my son, Ryan, who's now 20. And um, he said, what about Kevin? And I said, well, you know, Kevin, you know, the, he's going to do Harlem Goes East. And this is, you know, written for a, uh, a like a white, you know, Caucasian American. And he, my, my son, not for the first time, sets me on my right moral path. He goes, Dad, again, your racism rears its ugly head. Him being raised Chinese and white. Brian says, Dad, again, your white guy perspective clouds your judgment. And I said, you know what? You're right. And he said, look, you're making you're directing for the first time in your late age. And you've been friends with Kevin for 30 years. You definitely need somebody at your side. Uh, it sounds like the other people, even Gary, might have been a handful when you actually got on location with all the challenges of filming in China. So why not go with what you know? Go with, with Kevin, your best friend. And I think it was the best, not the only advice he's given me in recent months, but the, some of the best. And so I called up Kevin from the subway and I said, what are you doing next week? <laughs> Something like that, you know. And he was like, well, I'm not sure. And I said, do you want to star in a movie? And that was that. And wow. uh, he That's was an amazing story. Well, he's an amazing man. I mean, Kevin, somebody I knew, he was a martial arts champion in England when I was writing my martial arts magazine, editing my martial arts magazine, Combat. And we became best buddies and... Um, then one side moved to Hong Kong was making films, which is a relatively unusual flight path for a former martial arts magazine editor. Um, you know, with Facebook, everybody pops up and people who have become actors pop up and ask you, understandably, if they can be in your movies. So Kevin duly got in touch. But to my amazement, he'd kind of put acting on hold. He was making a living as a fine artist. He was um, doing these magnificent uh, abstract canvases in Los Angeles and was making a name for himself as an artist. I mean, a painter. And he said, you know, energy, as, as Einstein says, energy is never created or destroyed. It only changes form. So he had taken the energy he had as a martial arts champion, as an actor, and then he was doing as working as a fine artist, um, which I thought was incredible. And uh, then he was still, I think, I always felt this guy had the potential and it's, that's something we've tried to do with these films is to find people who had that potential and say, OK, here's your chance. Show up on Monday and, you know, we'll, we'll let it happen for you. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of time, but we have the platform for you to show what you can do. And my God, did he. I mean, fantastic actor, uh, physically extraordinary and such a kind and patient and good man. And I think it comes across in the film. Uh, I just I just watched it again the other day, and of course, as director, I always see my shortcomings. But the one thing that comes across to me is the his extraordinary likability, and the fact that he's so engaging as an individual, and the, the audience will care about what happens to him. When can we expect the film being released? Well, it's funny you should say that. This very day, I believe, because I'm always bad with the time difference. Is American film market starting today in LA? I think it is. That's the first screening of The Dark Soul and the other films in our slate, Vixen, which is a female Chinese diehard movie, and Lady Detective Shadow, which is kind of like Sherlock 
in Crouching Tiger land with a female detective doing Kung Fu. So those three movies are at, uh, with our partners, Tricoast at uh, the American film market. So they're selling the film. And I would imagine, fingers crossed, that they will do their deals and the movies will come out in, I guess, the early part of next year. Oh, well, that would be wonderful. Is there a, uh, is there a sequel in development for Lady Blood Fight? It's funny. We talked about it. I mean, the production of that movie was enormously challenging, um, for all kinds of reasons. And so, I don't know. I suppose that there would be, there would have to be some rapprochement between the different parties to move forward with an official sequel. I mean, I suppose I could just go to China and actually it's funny in a way. I mean, we're doing, um, this, as I mentioned, boxing film. So a little, a little similar ground between the women's boxing movie and Lady Blood Fight. I suppose I could just go to China and do, do it, do a sequel by any other name. But the short the reason I, the reason I, the yeah. reason I asked you if there was a sequel in development is because I have some ideas for a sequel for Lady Blood Fight. And I wow, wanted to well, know listen, if you were, I will. I actually, now that I'm talking to you, I just, I just wanted to know if there was one in development because I'm like, I've got this no, idea I mean, for were, something were, in your. Yeah. I mean, there were, I think that the, the film came out really well and I have to give full praise to Chris Naan, to, uh, you know, Yan Yan, the action directors, the team involved. Um, and I just, the behind the scenes of it, I think, uh, the whenever you do any east meets west project and i've done a few myself you 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 can sometimes have some tensions so the behind the scenes of it was quite difficult but the actual resulting film as is often the case was really was really came came across well um so i think it's um it, it, it may be challenging to get everybody back to the table to do um an official sequel but if you've got any notes Send them on over. And by the way, you know, time passes and, you know, I think the movie's succeed done quite well. It might be interesting to go back. Originally, my original script, um, you may find this interesting. I mean, there was a whole third act to the film that we never shot, which was basically um, when the, uh, the Chinese uh, instructor woman is captured by the bad guys and taken to Macau and the girls interrupt the tournament, go and rescue her, and there's a big fight in a mansion with the Russian bad guys hired by the villain of the piece. And then they save her. There's a rapprochement between the Japanese master and the the two the Japanese master and the Chinese master. And then they come back and then you have the finale of the tournament. But we realized in developing the film it was going to be incredibly expensive just to shoot the first two acts. And so that kind of like kind of diversion to Macau was a bridge too far. Um, and then it set up the fact that the, uh, the father of the main character had left behind clues to some mystery. And the two girls at the end of the film set off on a journey to compete in another tournament somewhere in the mists of China. So that was the original concept. Wow! Yeah, that sounds. All you, all you fans of Lady Blood Fight. That was the original, the original version. Actually, I'm thinking I was, I, I'm not as a standalone, but I was actually thinking at some stage I'll do a book which is more obviously, you know, my new book 
36 Chambers of, of Kung Fu Cinema does delve into my position, my background as a filmmaker and gives, you know, my kind of first hand accounts of my experiences with various key Hong Kong filmmakers. At some stage, I might do more of narrative biography, talking about my autobiography, talking about my life and film here. And then I'm thinking I would actually have the original scripts for some of the films uh, printed in the book. Because always you end up doing interviews where you say, um, not necessarily in the case of Lady Bloodfight, because I think they did a pretty good job. The director did a pretty good job. But um, you think, well, you know, my original script was much better, which I certainly think probably was the case for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. So what I want to do is actually do a book where I talk about my career. And then as like a, an addendum, you have those original scripts, which is something you can do perhaps for a digital version. I don't know whether you do it for the print version. And then people could read the scripts and make their own mind up. Yeah, that's right. definitely a good idea. Well, I, I, I kind of did that with my first quite disastrous film with my independent company. We did a film called The Blood Bond. And I was so unhappy with the process, so unhappy with the film. I thought, well, I'm either going to sit around drunk for the next 20 years complaining, or I can do something creative with this deeply felt dissatisfaction. So I wrote a book, a novel, The Blood Bond, and I'm actually, which tells the story as I feel I should have made the film. And people kind of like this. And now I'm actually doing for our release.com website, I'm going to have a second chapter of that. What, what the sequel to that movie would have been had we made it. Hey, you know what? Maybe I'll just do the Lady Blood fight sequel as a novel and see if anybody options it. Maybe we can do it together. Send me your, send me your ideas. We'll, we'll team up. I will. I will send you my ideas. I just wanted to know if it was okay to start, I wanted to know if it was actually okay to start writing it because you, you know, because you were like, I had written down some ideas and I just wanted to know if it was in development personally. Like, I'm like, I well, just want to know. I, I, I just want to be <laughs> But by the way, from my perspective, I mean, I have, um, well, I certainly have an ego, but I don't have any problem with people coming in, um, offering to collaborate or having ideas about intellectual property that I've created. So it's no problem whatsoever. I just wanted to be upfront with you. It's, to the best of my knowledge, there's no sequel in development, and the political internal background is such, it feels unlikely to me that there would be uh, an official sequel. But I certainly, I certainly feel, I mean, look, you can see a trend to my films. I mean, I just think it's great to do movies with strong female independent leads, and the case in point was Vixen, which we also have opening at AFM, which is this lady um kind of a female that was lady blood sport this is lady die hard and it was just you know the idea of doing a movie with a female chinese lead trapped in a building by a multinational team of bad guys and fighting and saving the day and how that's a little different if you're a woman as opposed to if you're bruce willis and particularly you know in the beginning of the film when they find out that she's awol in the building, one of the bad guys, who's a German guy, says, look, she's alone, she's a woman, and she's Chinese. How much trouble can she be? And guess what? You know, it becomes significant trouble for the bad guys. And that was a lot of fun. A wonderful girl called Lee Ran, L-I-R-A-N, who was fantastic in that film. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, that's my inclination anyway. So I may well go back. I, I could go back to the well on uh, Lady Blood Fight and we'll and do something in a similar vein, incorporating your ideas. Okay, yeah, that would be great. I will definitely shoot those your way. 
Yeah, and, but of course you'll be duly credited and compensated. I'm not saying I'm going to. Oh no, 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 I'm just I'm. I'm excited just to be just to be thinking about it. Like I had all these ideas after it was over. I'm like, my God, we you could do this, you could do this, because you create because it created such a such a unique world, and I, I appreciated all the you know diversity in it. And like you said, these films with strong female leads now are what are mm. what seems to be generating all of the <laughs> all of the popularity. Great, so it's a wonderful, yeah, it's a wonderful Women are indeed time holding up. They're not more than half the sky, as they always have. But, you know, I should send you the original script, because, as I say, there's that whole extra third act. And um, there's like, yeah, there's a lot of material in there that didn't make it to the final cut. Um, I I always find with my movies, I mean, it definitely was the case with Crouching Tiger 2, that there was... um, I, I think I've got an interesting background as a, a writer for these films in that I've got a classical education. I'm, you know, very great devotee of, of literature beyond martial art movies. I mean, Shakespeare, great poets like Dylan Thomas. And um, I'm, you know, uh, Cormac McCarthy is my favorite author. So when I come in to do films, I'm coming from that kind of background. And what tends to happen in the process is... Um, and I'm going to, probably going to get shot down in flames for saying this, but that the feeling that an American mainstream audience have trouble with flowery language, with poetry language, with, with poetic language, with philosophical language, and this pressure to dumb it down if you're doing a genre film. And we had that with Crouching Tiger, and I had it with Lady Bloodfight. And uh, it's, a, it's, you know, I trust the American distributor, and I trust the American partner, but at the same time, um, for me as a writer, you feel that you you want to um, kind of like raise the level of your game and raise the level of the genre and not not pander. And I don't think it's true, by the way. I think audiences surprisingly. I mean, when I look at the Lord of the Rings trilogy, of course, everybody focuses on New Zealand and the effects and the costumes. But the other wonderful thing about that movie is the language, the use of language. And I think one of the reasons that some of these other movies set in a similar vein failed is because they tried to have contemporary language in a fantastic setting. And I think that you have to have everything uniform. And the great thing about Lord of the Rings was that the actual the quality of writing was was so wonderful. And it was of, of a piece with everything else. Um, as I say, I mean, I'm trying now to do that and bring that to the films we're doing in China where I don't have to. Uh, you know, kind of answer to anybody except my partner James. I mean, we don't, and the government in terms of getting the censorship, but we don't really have to answer to any studio. That's a wonderful thing to have that to have that creative freedom. It's it's both exciting and exhilarating. It's exhilarating, but also a bit terrifying because it, it, there is something to be said for the fact that when um when you kind of like um. You, you kind of can aren't, you could always have a get out of jail clause when somebody says something they don't like about one of your films you say well that wasn't my fault that was the studio well the director made me do it i was forced to do it by somebody else when you're making your own films with complete freedom if people don't like it you've got no excuses and by the way i have to say i look at you know i think i did my best with dark soul and it's a really entertaining movie i just see what flaws with it and what i would do different if i can shoot it again but what's interesting is um you know, I look at myself at being at the bottom scale of directors 
and Ang Lee at the top. But when I've spoken with Ang Lee, he said exactly the same things. So I, I guess it's a uniform feeling of like, you just think about, you know, how much better the film should have been and where you messed up rather than enjoying the process. Now, when you, when you talk about like the studio, like the studio interference and stuff, my, my question is, isn't that something that happens with the majority of the films that are, that are released, at least in the, I don't know if that's how it's always been, but isn't that pretty much what the, what it is now? It's pretty much the fact that the studio has, because they have final say, you're going to get a lot more studio meddling, especially if it's like, say, a big movie that's released on a grand scale and it's something that they want to make sure they maximize the profits, which goes into what you were saying about dumbing down the movies and stuff for certain audiences. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and then, that, and then that's what makes director's cuts so nice because you get a, you get a director's cut and you finally get to see, oh, here's a three hour yeah. version of this movie and this is what the director really intended. And they, in the yeah. studio, whittled it down to two and a half hours. Well, if you cut, 30 or 40 minutes out of a movie that's a big chunk to take out of out of a movie and then that that explains why it comes out choppy or why it's doesn't seem cohesive or what you know the complaints that people usually have about those types of films so so i wonder why studios just more studios just don't trust their directors and just to allow their directors to make the movies they want to make well i think the reason the basic reason is that studios are answerable not to film critics or not to directors but to their stockholders most of them the major studios so their stockholders and to you know the people who invest money in the films invest money in the studio so their their, their eye is on the bottom line and uh, I, I i do feel their pain because and that said when when the studios make a lot of money i don't see them using that money to you know cure cancer they just use it to make more films um and to pay themselves insane salaries so you know it's not like you know they're, they're, they're hugely charitable institutions but um they have pressure on them to make money every year and these films are fantastically expensive so it does make sense i mean i suppose the best method is to become somebody like guillermo del toro who's so successful and so but such a unique visionary nobody really touches his films but they do so well anyway because he's such a fantastic visionary director and his films are you know relatively big budget um yeah well him and him and uh him and quentin tarantino if we're talking you know if we're talking about whatever they want want. that that privilege i mean i think what happens the films you're referring to in this generalization is that you get a um a film that is a new version of an of a character it's a comic book film or it's a uh you know i mean justice league obviously was hugely controversial i'm reading you know i didn't, didn't much care yes yes see, see i didn't want to bring I, I i didn't want to bring justice league up by name but that's what i was talking about because i'm involved in the movement to get the director's cut takes on where where they should go with it and uh but even like on the marvel films i mean i really enjoyed i think age of ultron and the afterwards um you know, there was talk about the director on that was not happy that they, the studio had done this, the studio had done that. So um, I think what tends to happen is if you have somebody who's not an auteur director and they're working for a major studio on something that is a um, a real big brand, 
there's a lot riding on it because you've got the cost of making the film and then you've got the fantastic cost of promoting the Prince PNA, the Prince and Advertising cost of selling the film globally after you finished it. Maybe that's as much again, or it's a, it's a huge amount of money. So for that investment, they're covering their, you know, they're kind of covering themselves. They're kind of like trying to protect their investment. And I guess that kind of, it does make sense. I, You know what? Knowing as I do the internal workings of Hollywood, the internal workings of the film industry, it's amazing as many good movies are made as are made. And, you know, great movies are made that get done. I mean... I mean, maybe it's two years ago now. I'm thinking about the Oscars, but I mean, things like Moonlight and uh, La La Land and these films getting made and the, the Shape of Water last year. The idea that these films can get made and distributed and find an audience, it does speak well to the nature of, you know, of, of our of our race that we can create, still create great art like that. But I agree. I mean, it's uh, there's a there's kind of a fine balance between the demand of the marketplace and the wishes of the artist and uh, film because it's so expensive. I mean, you never have this kind of debate if you're doing a painting or music or a stage play because the costs are so low, but you do get it when you make a film because it's still very expensive. Uh, but do you think and, that if uh, more studios trusted their directors that you'd have higher quality films and but their bottom line would be lower, or do you think that they would actually gain more money if they actually trusted their directors? That's the whole argument that well, I have. Well, yeah. Well, I think definitely, I mean, a case in point would probably be the, uh, I think you cast a director as readily as you cast a um, an actor for a film. And I think there's definitely a case to be made that, you know, in the recent era, you know, Lucasfilm, the Star Wars saga, they'd miscast their directors, obviously, because they had all these problems with reshoots on uh, the one that Donnie did, was that Rogue? And then on Solo, they replaced them. And obviously something had gone badly wrong in terms of casting the right director for the right project. So I think the studios have a responsibility, the executives, to put the right director on the right project. And I think that... um Creative people have to kind of work within the system, within the genre to make to make better, to do better work. I mean, some of the greatest movies which we revere to this day, um, It's a Wonderful Life, Casablanca, you know, all these movies were made within the, 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 the very tight restrictions of the old Hollywood studio system, which is much more tight than it is today. Um, and somehow filmmakers still matter. People like, I mean, is there, are there really filmmakers today as creative and inventive and as gifted as Billy Wilder or Frank Capra? I don't know. I, I, I'm old school, of course. John Huston. You know, are there really other, a lot of directors today are on the same level as those men? I'm old now, so I mean, maybe I just look back and go, those guys are at a different, different level. But they, their studio bosses, like the Goldwins and the Warners and the Selznicks, they were much more controlling, even controlling of someone like Hitchcock. And yet those guys made masterpieces. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that art is born of restraint and dies of freedom. And having something monolithic to push back against forces you to be more creative. And it's a bit like weight training. You know, you have to burn before you grow. So I think there's something to be said for having somebody to push against. And like I say, I mean, when I do my own movies now in China, it's a bit terrifying because you don't have that. 
you just have freedom. And then later somebody says, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And you just go, I didn't think of it or I couldn't afford it or I'm not clever enough. You know, <laughs> you've got nobody to argue. You've got nobody to blame. So that being said, and that being such a terrifying thing, are you happy that you don't have those restrictions? I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 well, I think it's down to if I'd never, I'm really blessed that I have done studio films within the Chinese system and big studio films within the Hollywood system and seen and had that experience because you need to compare and contrast. I think if I had, if I started my career um, and just done like small indie films or like indie films like we're doing now, these films aren't small, but they're like, you know, indie films compared to Crouching Tiger, say. So if I'd only ever done indie films and never worked with a major studio in Hong Kong or China or Hollywood, I would perhaps feel frustrated. You know, I wanted to work on that level of the playing field. So I enjoy this because I've had the restrictions of working on huge films. Um, and then in the future, we may go back around again and do bigger films and have again the pressures of a studio or an investor being more concerned and more diligent and more more involved in the process. And that'll be a different beast again. So uh, I think it's just each project has its own challenges and its own rewards. And speaking of challenges and rewards... One of the things I really like about your book is that your book seems like it's more, it's just far more intimate and personal in regards to Hong Kong cinema as a whole than a lot of books that are written on the subject. And that was something that I was trying, I wanted to touch with you yeah. earlier before, you know, before we got on the show. It was something I was thinking no, about because well, you had made yeah. a comment about, about how you know, you like to you like to read what others have to have to write and all yeah, that, and, and absolutely. And I found your, but I found the stuff that I was reading. It seemed like you were you were telling it in such a way that I could tell that it was a really personal and emotional thing for you, and you were telling it from right. a perspe- a real perspective where it really meant something and it was really important. And I just wanted to know, like, where where did you where did you go from there? You just kind of wrote it just based off of your experiences because it's, it just seems totally uh, it just seems totally like that like you just focused on how you felt about it all and it all just came out on the page right. I really appreciated it well I mean you know you're a writer yourself so I think you can relate to what I would say here is that if you if you the process of actually creating and writing something particularly a book is so all-encompassing and it requires so much time and energy yes. I think that you're driven to write something only you could write i don't see i don't see how unless you're some kind of hack that you come out and you say okay i'm going to write some generic piece about so and so um because i think there's a market for it i'm just going to fill that gap i mean if you're really a writer you're writing whereof you know and you're writing from a perspective that you alone have to tell a story that you alone are best suited to tell and that's how i took it I'd written 20 years ago my book, Hong Kong Action Cinema, really written on the on the cusp of leaving England and moving to Hong Kong. But that book was an outsider's view because right. I didn't really I just kind of put my foot in the water of Hong Kong cinema. So there's a little bit of inside information. But primarily it was an outside guide, a narrative guide to the industry. And I always thought in my mind at some stage I would come back 
Uh, I think at the 10 year mark, I actually went back to the publishers um, and said to Titan Books and said, let's do a revamped version. In the time since the book came out, you'd had Rush Hour, you'd had Crouching Tiger, you'd had Matrix. And they, in their wisdom, said, no, we don't think there's a sufficiently big market for that, um, which I think they were wrong. That said, no one else did a book either. So maybe it was a general feeling. It was a niche market to to do a um, to do a book about you know Hong Kong cinema. So um, I went back to making movies, you know, and that was my mainstay. And then I over the last year had thought what the structure would be. And then I decided to do 36 films, uh, which I had grown up with or had appreciated in my lifetime and kind of show, talk about the films in detail from my perspective as a film historian, but also to give my visceral reaction to the films in terms of my own life, how the films influence my life, how the individuals making the films influence my life, many of whom I know and work with, many of them had become friends in the years I've been in Hong Kong. And I guess, you know, I'm the only person that could write that story because Hong Kong cinema now has kind of moved to China. So there's no Hong Kong cinema like there was in the glory days. So you had to have somebody speaks the language, knows the people, um, an industry professional and somebody who's a, I guess, a deep expert on the history of Hong Kong Kung Fu cinema. So this felt like a book that I should do. But I felt what would differentiate it from other books, which might be lists of he was this and, and this actor did that, and, you know, kind of like uh, crit- critical analysis, which is fine, would be more a case of saying this is what the film means to me. This is how it fits into the history of Hong Kong cinema. And this is a detailed kind of like an examination because to be honest, I mean, my DVD commentaries probably were more popular and successful than some of the films I've made. Um, but whenever I do a DVD commentary, even talking as fast as I do, I could only put in a certain amount of information in the 90 minutes, 100 minutes I had to talk while the film was playing. So there's always a lot of information about the films that is, is left to one side. So that, to some degree, informed the book was like, I've done all this research for these films. There's also sections which some people might find a bit too in depth, which go absolutely blow by blow scene by scene of the films so that yeah. I hope it's a relative examination of the movies um, and people can go in with a fresh eye and see stuff. Even if they've watched the film 10 times, hopefully they can find new things um, because I'm offering this unique perspective of the, the white guy who's a filmmaker in Hong Kong. And it's great because, I mean, a lot of the times people have done books in the past where they would come to Hong Kong for a few weeks and interview people. And I do think, you know, maybe I'm Maybe I'm not doing so much of it today, but normally when you have interview mode, you're kind of a little hesitant of what you're going to say and not say. Whereas in my experience, I'd be working with these guys on films and we'd be sitting around the set having a more casual conversation, either in English or in Cantonese. So I felt I got more of a kind of realistic perspective on uh, on, on the industry and on the individuals who are in the industry. And it, definitely that informed my next book, which is called Bruce Lee and I, which is kind of just expanding that concept. And it's my view of Bruce Lee from my unique perspective. And that's and the, fa- and the fact that you've and the fact that you've actually played Bruce Lee will help you too. Well, you voiced voiced it. I, I fought Bruce Lee. <laughs> I fought Bruce Lee on camera. Mm. I mean, the, 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 this, the structure of the this takes the concept that you mentioned earlier one step further with 
Bruce Lee and I, it's like a kind of um, complementary alternate chapters. I mean, and probably if I give you an example, you can understand it better. It's like we have a chapter where I look at Fist of Fury, which was released right. in America as the Chinese connection. Look at that in some depth. And then the next chapter is called Being Petrov, and it's about me fighting Donnie Yen in the TV Fist of Fury. So then, which I don't think anybody else has had that experience of like, being a devotee of the original film and then getting to act in the in, in the remake. And I talk about my experience in film and with Donnie in some depth in that chapter. Um, there's a chapter about Bruce Lee's great unfinished masterpiece, Game of Death. And then the next Indeed. chapter is about me, my, my mission to find the missing footage. It's like quest for the lost, the lost film reels. When I found the dailies from Game of Death that hadn't been seen for like, I don't know, 20 years or however long it had been, maybe more than that. Um, so it's kind of, again, the book only I could write, juxtaposing um, my analysis of the films and my knowledge of Bruce Lee with my own firsthand experiences in, you know, his home city. So that's the book you're so working on that. currently. That's, that's, almost, that's finished now. The Bruce Lee book's finished. Then I go back and do... Um, the uh, second part of 36 Chambers, because as you know, we split it uh, because it's just huge. And then I'm going to, when I've got both both versions of 36 Chambers done, the, the whole book, I'll put it together like Gene Simmons's vault. And it'll be like this huge uh, kind of like monolith, massive tome printed hardback with all these bonus DVDs and stuff in it. And I'll actually deliver it like Gene Simmons is doing with the vault. It'll be Bay Logan's Kung Fu Vault, and I'll show up, watch a movie with you, Kung Fu form in your front yard, and uh, sign anything you want, and I'll spend a year doing that. Ha ha. That, w- that would be awesome. <laughs> and I will exclusively reveal on the Zod Writer Show, uh, my next book after that will probably be a biography of the late, great uh, Lao Gala, also known as Liu Chaliang the guy that directed Thirsty Chamber of Shaolin and all those other great movies at Shaw Brothers. Because I'm a huge devotee of him, and I think uh, he's worthy of a uh, of a biography in his own right. So that'd be the next he, one. He's but worthy, I, I, of, he's I, worthy I, of a biopic, definitely. I, I talked about that as well. And originally, when they were doing Yip Man 2, um, the character that Sam Hung played was meant to be uh, Lao Sifu's father, Lao Zhang. And then, I don't know, there was like issues, concerns about whether the Lao, surviving Lao family members would, would accept that. So they changed the story to become what it became in Yip Man 2. But the original concept for Yip Man 2 was it would be Yip Man versus Lao Jam, the father of Lao Galo. And I think that, um, you know, that the cinematic legacy of uh, Lao Galo has really not been appreciated sufficiently. I mean, for example, everybody credits... Uh, Yin Mo Ping and Jackie Chan, uh, with creating and, uh, with creating Kung Fu comedy and Sam Hung, my idol, with creating supernatural Kung Fu. But the fact is, Lao Gala had done this quite some time earlier at Shaw Brothers with his debut film, um, Spiritual Boxer, uh, Sanda, which had all the elements of Kung Fu comedy and all the stuff that people did later. But I guess, I don't know, maybe because those films at Shaw Brothers were not as widely seen for so many years. I don't know that he got the acclaim that was his due. So it's going to be interesting to go back to that well and, and do that. And again, I'm a longtime practitioner of the same style as Lao Zifu of Hongar. So all of these books I'm doing, 
I think are informed by um, my life in Hong Kong as a filmmaker, as a martial artist, um, and as a person, a man living in Hong Kong. And so uh, I, it's, it's, they will be different. I mean, people quite rightly have said, you know, do you need a Bruce Lee book? And how is it different from Matthew Polly's book, which is a wonderful biography. And, uh, you know, Matthew is a good friend of mine, and I was happy to help him out a bit when he was here. He was based out of my office when he was working on the Bruce Lee biography here in, in Hong Kong. But, you know, I, I look at it as being he's a Mandarin speaking guy from Iowa. And he wrote the Bruce Lee book that a guy from Iowa can write about Bruce Lee. I'm a Cantonese speaking white guy from Hong Kong. My book is the book that a Cantonese speaking white guy would speak, would do from Hong Kong. And so they complement each other rather than uh, conflicting. And all of my work, I think, is driven by thinking, OK, I have this unique perspective, a worldview of this matrix of Kung Fu, art, Southern Fist, mind, body, spirit connection. And how do I express that in films? How do I express that in books, in the Kung Fu school? I mean, we have realeast.com, R-E-E-L-E-A-S-T.com, which is selling the books. And I have this vast archive of movie memorabilia. If you want any, um, you can definitely get some on a special rate. <laughs> Hit me up. And uh, we should, um, you know, I'm just trying to promote basically southern Chinese martial art culture using whatever abilities and uh, talents that I have. Yeah, you're definitely doing it. And it's like you said, you're you're talking about all of these projects and various things you're doing. You've got to be exhausted, but you've got all this energy, so you're not. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I mean, one motivation is if you have five kids, you've got to earn enough money to... <laughs> Kind of like that. That's a good motivation if ever I get tired. But I do. I mean, when you're actually when you're when you're working, when you're in the process of creating, it's, you know, everybody who's ever been a creative person would relate that there's points when it it just does become painfully hard work, and it's, it's also there's an emotional aspect that you get depressed. I mean, I, I remember when, when whenever you look at the first cut of a movie you've made, you're kind of like you feel like hanging yourself. I mean, sometimes. I've been at the premieres of films I've made and I felt like hanging myself. So it's like, you know, you, uh, you know, you kind of like that goes with territory. If you've got the, if you're, if you have the sensitivity necessary to create, you have the sensitivity to feel something relevant to your creations. I mean, and of course, I don't like it any more than anybody does when I read people say negative things about films I've done or, or any other work of mine. But I think, you know, the day-to-day -day experience of living life and having the blessing to create and to, through your creation, make a connection with people from all around the world, different backgrounds, it's so far outweighs the negative. It's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, I suppose, if you have 10 guys who like what you're doing, they don't necessarily are as, loud, as outspoken as the one guy who has it in for you. You know what I mean? Right, right. There's always right. that that majority. There's always it's that, like, that like, loud, talk, talk about loud like, minority. It's like, yeah, it's like if, I, if somebody asks me about you, I probably say, he's a great guy. I always have great interviews, a great conversation with him. And I move on to somebody else. But then if I had a bad experience with somebody, I'd be like, oh, you wouldn't believe that guy. And then I have a whole story to tell. It's just something in our nature, I guess, as human beings. And I think it's informed, unfortunately, the nature of discourse very uncivil discourse on the internet, which I never participate in. I never want to get into chat rooms. I never want to get into Twitter and attacking people. 
<laughs> so you're not going to be that director uh, attacking people. You're not going to be that director attacking people and arguing with people over your film. I think, there's a, I think there's a certain number of filmmakers who have secondary careers as film critics and as social commentators, which I don't think is necessarily yes. appropriate. And I definitely feel that um, as somebody who get, the, 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 the Chinese film, the Hong Kong film fan community is quite vicious and i've certainly been i'm sure i don't read it but people tell me occasionally oh somebody said this somebody said that i think all that energy that goes into sitting up late at night tapping away and complaining about somebody else you would better use to create something yourself and and if you you know like um i think it was uh godard that said the best way to review a film is to make another film or you know to do something creative and i think that a lot of this energy that in previously would be used towards writing a script or writing a book or, or, or writing properly researched articles for magazines goes into writing online and engaging in this kind of really unproductive dialogue because it's all very personal. And um, I just think the way people talk from the top down, I mean, globally, uh, has become very uncivil. And I think it's like, unpleasant and i try to protect my children from it as best i can the idea that the only dialogue is online where you are basically just saying unproven things or, or saying you know mean things about individuals uh, not about their work but about them as people and talking about other people's work in a demeaning way and not doing any of your own and i think it's just shifted. And there's always been criticism there's always been a platform for gossip and conversations. I think it's taken up too much of the dialogue now. Oh, absolutely. It's taken on a life of its own in the sense that we're at a point now where social media has blown up to almost, I kind of, I kind of hearken it. I just call it like the gutter because it ultimately is just a bunch of guttural language. And a lot of times it doesn't even yeah. really correlate to anything. Yeah. Just insults. I mean, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give an example. Just, like you get, Movies, movies that I really enjoyed that got, I, I, and by the way, I'm completely open to a film failing on its merits and failing to find an audience on its merits. And of course, many films that we regard as classics today when they were first released failed and later found an audience. Like last night, I was at a screening of Lost Horizon here, which, you know, was a movie that took a long time to find its audience. But I mean, something like Ghost in the Shell, which I really enjoyed. Um, the Scarlett Johansson movie, or something like um, uh, Birth of the Dragon, the Bruce Lee kind of like Wong Jack Man biopic, which I really enjoyed. I don't think they got a fair chance to be appreciated by their audience because they got destroyed online by people who were far less creative than the people that made the films. And, and they got destroyed. They got destroyed. They got destroyed prior to the movie coming out. That's the problem. You know, that is the thing. I think the thing is, the film was made that, that but both of those movies, I don't think you, you might take issue with, you know, again, it becomes a political debate. I don't necessarily think I want to get into, but I mean, you, you, you look at the films and you just go, obviously the people making the movies cannot be dismissed as filmmakers because both films are well made. The question then is what political agenda you have or what personal agenda you have and how you use your online platform to attack somebody else's work. And I think it's much more appropriate that work be allowed to go out, find an audience, 
and not be attacked in that way. So those are two particularly egregious examples. And then curiously, I'd heard online, oh, these things are terrible, unwatchable, awful, this, that, and the other. I mean, you know, I have to say, I'm a, obviously a, a white guy, but I'm really a Chinese filmmaker. I mean, I've worked in, only really worked in Hong Kong and China, and primarily with Chinese people. I mean, if we bought the remake rights to a Hollywood film and made it in China, we would use Chinese actors. And when the Korean film companies buy the rights to Chinese films or American movies to remake, they remake them with Korean actors. So it made sense to me that when you have Ghost in the Shell, when the Americans, the Hollywood people, bought um, the rights to a Japanese manga to make a movie in America, that they would use an American actress in the lead. And that's I, no one ever made that argument of every culture when they buy the rights to a property from another culture they remake it. Like when they remade The Eye and Ring in America, those Japanese horror movies, they cast it with Jessica Alba and people. So I, I don't didn't understand that argument at all about Ghost in the Shell. And it's not like the manga or the Japanese versions were not readily available. Of course they are. So it wasn't like they were not allowed to be distributed. And with Birth of the Dragon, I thought, you know, that the performances were fine and the 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 idea of the film was really interesting. And to um, kind of like say, you shouldn't go and see this movie because the events depicted therein did not really happen the way they're depicted. I mean, I think that probably limits you watching any number of movies. Absolutely. I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a difference between being a biographer and a historian and, a doc, and even a documentarian and being a filmmaker, and you say, hey, you know what, I want to be inspired by this. I mean, there used to be something that medieval illustrators did with their classic tomes. It's called a palimpsest. It's basically when they embellished the original sacred tome, and they, they, would, they would embellish it to the glory of God. And I think that something like Birth of the Dragon is a palimpsest. They took the um, original story and the original historical event, and then they embellished it to tell their story. And that is what filmmakers and creatives do. I don't know that these people online, bitching and moaning, do anything worthy comparable to that, in my opinion. You know, and that's just my old man's opinion based on the fact that I'm peripherally aware of the power of uh, the kind of the online kind of like social media these days. I think it's disproportionate. I think I think yeah. we I think we need to have more faith in the creative people and less give less attention to the people twittering away at midnight in their parents' basement. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, and, I, and I think I think where where we are now. My Luddite rant. Oh my God, they're going to be like, yeah, well, of course, it's fifty-five, fifty-six. What does he know about the opinion of the young? Today? <laughs> yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, well, yeah, you're well. If you're on Twitter arguing with someone about your film. I mean that's that's one thing. I mean, because you gonna... know what the other thing is, people people used to people used to say that oh well you know like uh, the audience had a right to kind of make these comments because they were the guys buying the tickets and they were, but you know what from my experience now most people aren't paying for this stuff anyway. They no. they're, they're streaming it for free. They're, they're streaming music for free. Maybe they're even getting books shared for free these days. They're not even paying for this stuff and they're still complaining about it. I mean, back in the day when you had to buy a movie ticket and find a, a babysitter and car parking and you went to see the movie and the movie sucked, yes, maybe you wanted to go home and say, damn, I was ripped off. But these days, people writing, normally they, they're reviewing a pirated version of the film that they streamed for free. They're not even the paying customers. 
that's that's the you know that's the ironic part about it. I, I think. You're, you're By the way, I just want to say I'm not I'm not sitting in my you know kind of ivory tower <laughs> like cursing. It's just you and I are having a fun conversation, and it takes up a very tiny part of my day. I never write about other people. Probably not. If I ever wrote of anybody, it would be to say something positive. But I I never would. Um, I can't think I've ever got engaged in any kind of uh, attack on anybody online. And if people criticize my work or or me as an individual, I I, I just ignore it. Um, to because basically the focus of every day I think should be what can you create. Um, it's like uh, saying from uh, I think it's Thomas uh, I think it's from uh, Thomas More is like you know I must no it's from the Bible when it says I must do the work of Him that sent me now that it, now that it is day for soon comes the night when in which no man can work. So you just get up every morning and it's like what can I do today to express myself to create and. Uh, uh, you, that that's the focus and and so the negativity kind of fades away at that point and with that being said you know what we're gonna do we're gonna take a quick break and uh we will be right back oh my god there's more <laughs> i sure hope so because you i mean you you've definitely you've definitely uh covered a lot of stuff today so far i mean it's it's yeah. been amazing and it's been amazing all the topics we've managed to manage to get through in just one hour and i and are I, we on the I air now to, are we still yeah on the we're, air? St- we're still on the air i haven't gone to break yet i've been oh, okay. i've been saying i've been saying oh, we're okay. going to go to break but break. the point i the last point Brilliant. i was trying to make okay. was that we were that we're you know we're getting through so much in one hour that it's just like we yeah. it doesn't even feel like it's been totally. an hour it's gone by so quickly <laughs> but uh yeah. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break about 3 minutes and uh we will be right back you're listening to the Zod Rider show with myself Zod Rider and my special guest tonight Mr. Bay Logan thank you everyone for listening we will be right
Definitely, we are back on tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show with myself, Zod Rider, and yeah. special guest Bay Logan. And right. wow, so so I'm I'm excited to read your upcoming Bruce Lee book. In fact, I'm excited for all of these projects, yeah. the films, everything you've mentioned. It's 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 amazing. And, and like I said, I've always been just a huge fan. And all, when we were off the air, we were talking a little bit about uh, your commentaries. On you know some of the DVDs right, and which stuff we, that we you... now do. I do them on realeast.com. We have um, I do record commentaries at my hidden fortress here in Hong Kong, and I, it was great. It was kind of again very freeing not to be working with a corporation. Well, there were two reasons. I mean, well, I, I don't know that I was self-censoring anyway, but I certainly feel free to talk about the films very honestly, more honestly even perhaps than if I was... My, my concern was always if I was doing commentaries for a company, if I said anything that, you know, kind of, uh, I know it was too blunt, if anybody was critical, they would be, maybe they come after the company, which is not fair, right? But in this case, if anybody hears me say something they don't agree with, they can criticize me directly, which I'm fine with. Um, the other thing was that um, I could then do commentaries for films in the context where it was unlikely that the um, distribution company would ever engage me to do a commentary. For example, Enter the Dragon, which is the great granddaddy of, you know, martial art movies. Uh, there's been one, in my view, fairly poor commentary done 
many years ago, and then no one ever did one since. I don't know well, why. Now, 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 wait a minute. Wasn't before? Wasn't that the uh, the one with the original the producer and? I don't Paul know Allen. if it was the director. Uh, it wasn't I know with... I'm breaking my rule. I'm breaking my rule about about filmmakers not being critical. But I I, I kind of want to make a point here, and I'm I, I respect Paul Heller, who's still. I just heard about him the other day being involved with the film. Greatly respect his work and his work on Enter the Dragon. And I think from my own experience, having recorded more of them than anybody else in the world, Guinness Book of Records, please note, um, you know, for DVD commentaries, it's a skill unto itself. So I'm not in any way. <clears throat> it's kind of like if um, you know, Paul Heller was a, 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 a master sculptor and I was trying to do a sculpture. It was like. It's a different different field, and I think that that's my criticism of Paul in that respect. I thought the commentary was not that great, perhaps because he is not that experienced as a commentarian. Um, but what it did, and I think this is an important part of the creative process, is <clears throat> and it uh, inspired me because I listened to it, and there's two reactions, I guess. One is that you basically go online and start talking about you didn't like commentary. The other which I did was it was like, okay, then I'll start doing my own. And then, you know, a hundred commentaries on, I'm still doing them. So my reaction to it was, I don't need to criticize the guy that did that commentary. If I really want to do something, I should do it better. And that's not saying that there's not roles for people to crit to be critics and to give a comment and an opinion who can't themselves be a creative. But in my case, I could. So I just, but it's interesting because the one that inspired me was the, commentary for Enter the Dragon, and it took another 10, 15 years before I actually got to do the Enter the Dragon commentary for the release site. So it's up there now. Um, and then I did 36 Chamber of Shaolin, which I wanted to do with Dragon Dynasty. And when we started Dragon Dynasty, uh, there were two experts of Hong Kong film um, on board, uh, myself and Quentin Tarantino. And I was disappointed. Quentin... It's funny because he's like obviously the preeminent, wonderful, populist filmmaker and somebody I've been very friendly with over the years. I think he would like to be regarded as, you know, the world's greatest, like, non-Chinese expert on Kung Fu cinema. And, of course, that's me. So so I was like, I think there was a slight conflict between us. He wanted to do his DVDs with his guys and I wanted to do mine. I thought we'd work together, but it was never the twain shall meet. So I didn't get, I got kind of like elbowed out on the original Dragon Dynasty release of Thursday's Chamber of Shaolin. So I finally got to do a commentary I'm for glad, that. One. I'm glad uh, you mentioned that one because I, when I bought that Blu-ray, I was like, where is Bay Logan's commentary? I was, upset, I was upset thing, when, I, you know, <laughs> when I looked at it. I'm like, where, where is where it? it came down. Word came down. It's funny because he doesn't really do them himself, commentaries. I mean, Quentin was meant to do a commentary. I think the King Boxer, and at the last minute, he didn't want to do it. Um, by the way, you know, here's a guy in Quentin's case. I mean, nobody has greater respect than I for his films. I mean, I think he's just this extraordinary populist filmmaker, this guy who's tapped into the zeitgeist again and again. And, I mean, it's fantastic. It's just I'm telling you my personal experience was we started the label, and I think he felt, to some degree, I might contradict stuff that he had said or that there would be, you know, if, if people heard two commentaries, maybe they would like mine more than the one that I think was done by Rizzer and somebody else. But, and by the way, I thought their commentary was good. I thought they did a really good job with it. Yeah, Rizzer did a good job with it, too. 
That would have been a perspective of two guys in New York, and that I could not give that perspective because, you know, I'm not a guy from New York. My perspective would have been that of the white guy from the Hong Kong film industry and from the Kung Fu world of of Hong Kong, the Hong Kong world of Hong Kong. So that would have been a unique experience as well. So they would have, again, it's like with the Bruce Lee books, it would have um, complemented rather than conflicted. But it, yeah, you, you know, we go back to what we were saying at the top of this about dealing with studios. You always get those um, conflicts of ego or, um, you know, politics within the structure. And I suppose the nice thing now is that things have free, been freed up to the extent that, uh, Certainly with books and commentaries and music, you can do what you want and find an audience. And I'm finding that out myself. Filmmaking wise, it's still expensive to make films. So um, it's harder to have that level of freedom. I probably have a, I probably have about as much freedom as anybody could have as a filmmaker now, which is funny because I'm working in China. But I certainly feel that way. Um and yeah, the only restriction is that we can't shoot. Our budgets are not huge. I mean, not huge by American standards. I mean, our budgets are good. I mean, if you're an independent filmmaker, you'd be happy to have the money that we have to make films with. But it can't compare with like a Hollywood studio film. So, so like, what would be a like a three hundred million dollar Hong Kong movie? What would that look like? Well, I don't know that you'd ever need to spend that. I mean, my, I believe that any film below the line can be shot for about 10 million in China. And I see the budgets of films that they do there. Um, I mean, basically, it's 10 million of below the line. And God knows how much in bad CGI. Because, I mean, I just think the CGI right. on China movies is, is appalling. And um, I guess people play a lot of video games and they watch stuff on their phones and they either don't notice or they don't care. But I, I do, and I certainly feel it's just distracting. And if you go back to look at some of the classic movies like Thirty-Six Chamber, Magnificent Butcher, um, the first Once Upon a Time in China, Iron Monkey, these films are incredibly entertaining. And there's really no CG, very a few primitive CG shots or effect shots in the films, and they just work on their merits. But now you look at the films today, and they seem to paper over the cracks with bad CGI. The actual production costs in China still, I don't think, are as high as they need to be. Um, they end up, I think, paying too much on the actors sometimes. But the actual physical production is not that much. So we can shoot our movies for like, you know, a uh, million dollars plus and, and, and it's very comfortable. I mean, we, we have a, you know, we, we have room to breathe. Um, I think when you do a Hollywood picture and you have union restrictions and you have all of the perks, and there's so much money spent on these films that doesn't actually make its way to the screen. Uh, so I talk about the mid-range films. I mean, the bigger films, I mean, they spend money on everything. They spend money on the, what's actually in the film, and they spend a lot of money behind the scenes too. But you get mid-range movies where you look at what the demands are of the actors and what the requirements are of the production, the producers, and what everybody's paying themselves and, you know, all the perks. And you think, boy, you can make a whole movie with that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, the whole thing with the, you know, with the CGI and all that, but then you also have like the marketing elements of it too, at least in America, where it's, where they spend yeah, so much I mean, on the see, marketing campaigns. I, I, I don't want to come across, yeah, I'm not like a Luddite and saying we have to go back in time and space to, uh, you know, I remember when they did the prequels to Star Wars and George Lucas was talking about 
the fact that everything is fake in films. Yeah, but normally you can't tell. And with the prequels, you could tell because the CG, I think, was not that. I mean, to me, a movie that seamlessly had CGI all the way through the trilogy that worked was Lord of the Rings. And, uh, you know, you never stop short in that movie and go. And I got to work with a lot of the craftsmen who worked on Lord of the Rings when we did uh, Crouching Tiger in New Zealand. And it's extraordinary the level of ability those guys have. But that was kind of seamless, I think, because you had this really uh, un, unflinching creative lead in the person of Peter Jackson who refused to accept second best. And that was from the script through till the post, the music and, and everything. Um, and I don't know, in, in China, in the Chinese industry at the moment, uh, I don't know that they that there's visionaries who are as disciplined as that. There's certainly a sense that, you know, they want to play to the marketplace. And um, I don't think anybody would argue that Chinese films now are as good consistently as they were in the glory days of Hong Kong cinema, like from the 70s through to the late 90s, 2000s. I mean, there were so many great movies made in this tiny, tiny British colony. And now you have China, which is so vast, with so much money and resources. And I still think they haven't claimed their place in the world stage. I'm not now talking about as a distribution um, kind of territory, which, of course, China is hugely important for the, for the American movies distributed there. I mean, Chinese cinema, films made in China, should be better regarded globally. And uh, I hope I, I wish I could be part of that in the years to come, because I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, hopefully it happens. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about what, what I think has to happen is that you're going to have a generation of um, young Chinese people who've had a more international experience. They've either studied overseas or they've watched a lot of films and studied and, and studied film in China. And you need your. Chinese like version of Guillermo del Toro or of uh, Quentin Tarantino to kind of rise up and make movies in China for the Chinese market. And, you know, people talk about the politics, but I mean, most successful American films, hit ma mainstream films are not overtly political in any way, nor should Hong Kong or not, not, nor should Chinese films be, but they need to be entertaining and well-made. Um, and play to a mass audience, and, and this is what we need to work on over this next decade. Yeah, and I, and you know, I'm excited. I'm excited just listening to you talk about it. It's hyping me up because, you know, well, it's strange to be. It's strange. It's a strange perspective to be. To be. I mean, there's something to be said for. I, I think there's two ways to respond to being the kind of the black swan. I mean, I look at it as being as the white guy. Um, you either become like a fake Chinese person and um, try to kind of be a just another Chinese person and be treated like them, like everybody else is. Um, or you can use your unique perspective as a uh, as an immigrant to to kind of like address the issues of the society in which you find yourself because you have that slight distance and perspective. And I think that that's where I if I have any role to play. Um, that's kind of where it is. It's somebody I'm de deeply entrenched in the culture. I have like five Eurasian children, uh, you know, deep background in Chinese martial arts and film culture. But I'm a remain at heart, an Australian guy, Swedish Australian guy born and raised in England. And I'm in 
Hong Kong and I'm in China. So I have that perspective where I'm going, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? And there's an, I think there's a generation of younger Chinese who are a bit like me, who come at it from a more international perspective, who will challenge the status quo and will want to do creative things beyond what's being done now. Yeah, and and when that happens, they're going to be they're all going to be those generations coming up are going to be looking at you are going to be looking at your films and seeing and seeing and seeing where you are and getting inspiration from those films as well. So that's I hope so. A, I mean, I I, I still think I'm not um, for whatever reason not uh, you know I look at myself as being I, I would say I was like kind of like getting there as a writer. Uh, and as a producer and uh, certainly would like to direct again after Dark Soul. I think, you know, uh, that Dark Soul is a, is an interesting and engaging movie. I mean, I was so blessed to have Kevin Brewerton as my leading guy, but there's a lot of interesting, fun ideas in the film. And I, I think the thing is, it's like, I, 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 a friend of mine who was a professional fighter said, I know, I don't admire anybody who gets in the ring once because they didn't really know what to expect. I admire somebody who gets in the ring twice because they remember how painful it was the first time. And I think that is me. I did my first film in my late age as director, and I'd like to do one again now that I know how, how, much, how demanding and how painful it is. I want to do it again. So it's more of a, you know, I have more of an informed mind now about the specifics of directing. Um, but it was great. It's a, it's a fantastic to have had that experience and had that opportunity um, at a stage of life when, a lot of, for a lot of people, I guess, it, there's a certain sameness to life that that's, they've fallen into. Um, and I think probably as you get into your 50s, the opportunities to do new things tend to diminish. And in my case, blessedly, I, I got to uh, constantly reinvent myself even at this stage, which has been exciting. I mean, this year as an author, as a... Um, as a director, and then as a even as a, a rebooted martial arts competitor. So I don't know how many more tournaments I'm going to do. <laughs> it was yeah, and, to do that one. And, and then let's and then let's not forget you be, you became a podcaster too for a while. <laughs> podcaster for a while, and then even coming back now as a character actor in Chinese films, which I had never had any ambition. Uh, oh well, and that's not true. When I was a younger guy, like everybody, I looked at the Bruce Lee movies, and I was. Oh, if only anybody could see me, and I should be doing action films as well. You know what? I'm gonna, you know, everybody. I'm gonna start the rumor about the Bruce Lee animated series with Bay Logan voicing Bruce Lee. I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna do it. (laughs) Start the rumor on Twitter. I've done it twice. I did it for the Game of Death, for Game of Death, for the Japanese version, the the typing game, (laughs) and the typing game. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because at the time I didn't really think anything of it, but in the current political climate. A white guy impersonating a Chinese man speaking English. Um, you know, I probably think twice today, but at the time it was just somebody said, Hey, you know what? You sound just like, and John Little did the same thing for the Warner Brothers re-release event of the dragon. Um, you know, you sound just like Bruce Lee. You just come in and do it. And it was, there wasn't a thought about political correctness. It was just, you come in and, you know, you're the guy on hand, which has kind of been the story of my career. I think it's basically, you're there, you have the ability, and you just... I mean, there's a movie with Jim Carrey, uh, The Yes Man, which I think has a really... It's a fun, silly movie, but it has a very great message to it, which is the idea of saying yes to life. And, um, you know, I, I meet young filmmakers, I meet young people today, and 
I feel sometimes frustrated. I'm going, you know, you really need to just be saying yes to stuff, you know, like, yes, go and do this film. Don't worry about the money at this stage. Don't worry about, um, you know, your other schedule. There's time. Just say yes to the opportunities that you're getting now, because that's where the reward will come from. Um, but I think that's probably an old man's perspective. But I certainly, in my own case, regret in my past saying no to things not showing up for stuff, declining opportunity, um, more than I regret the things I did that didn't work out. I mean, I just think, well, I said yes, and I did the best I could do, and, you know, the chips fell where they may. So I think that that's, that's kind of a, uh, you know, a big thing to life. Like you say, doing the DVD, doing a voice of Bruce Lee, where somebody said, well, would you mind doing it? Yes, I'll do that. I'll do the typing game. Yes. You want to be in this movie? You want to fight Donnie Yen? Yes. You know, and you just, you look back and you've had an interesting life. Uh, and I would advise anybody listening to this to, to the same, just say yes to life. And when you have opportunity, grab it um, and don't second guess yourself too much. Definitely going to be the title of tonight's of tonight's episode. Say yes to life. That's what we're going to call the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> makes, totally. makes perfect makes perfect sense. So mm. so with so with all this stuff so with all this stuff going on, what's currently What's currently going on for you in terms of uh, where you are project wise? Are you are you are you relaxed now that your film is your film is complete? Are you taking a little bit of a break or are you moving right into well, I'm something? Well, I'm never I'm never relaxed because I um, I have to keep even you know I have to keep earning a living um, and so I have to keep working. I feel like I'm working stiff, like a guy you know building a wall or a guy working at Starbucks. I'm just a guy who gets up every day to go to work. Um, and I'm lucky I do something I love. Perhaps those guys don't, but I mean, I'm lucky to have that, but it's still a job of work. Right now, I'm putting the finishing touches to the Bruce Lee book. Um, I'm preparing for, um, to go up to, uh, Wuhan, Mohan, to shoot my role for, uh, and produce and to act in Loser is the Winner, our boxing film. And I'm uh, every day revamping and uh, updating our release site with memorabilia and uh, commentaries and other items um, and also supporting my Sifu to run the Kung Fu school. So that's where I'm at right now. And I always feel there's not enough time. I get up every morning and I go, well, I've got a whole day ahead, you know, like plenty of time. And then down comes the night and you always feel like I always feel like I haven't done enough. So I, I guess I do more than some people, perhaps. But I, that's my focus at the moment, finishing the book, preparing the movie. Um, you know, it's every uh, I try to see, I, I see the little, my two little children more than the bigger ones, because the bigger ones are away at school. My oldest boy is working now. In, he's actually taking a break from film to be a teacher at school. My two older boys are in school, but I t- touch base with them every day and make sure I'm involved with what they're doing and helping them as best I can. Um, and then the little ones um, we see, you know, obviously they're just, just an eight. So I get more time with them every day. Um, so focus on family and then every day, just how to be creative, how to, I mean, I think Kev, Kevin Bruton, you know, my star from the dark soul, great idea. This idea of energy being transferable, creativity from one form to the other that you could act you could do martial arts you could do um painting and that the wellspring of that is the same source 
And I never really thought of it that way. And I think he's onto something. And so I always think, okay, if I'm doing a commentary, writing my book, training Kung Fu, preparing to produce the film, what, you know, it's just drawing on whatever creativity I have. And that's what, that's how you get a rewarding life. And I think that's probably more rewarding long-term than being concerned about fame, reputation. Um, you have to make a living, but I do think that making a living can be a byproduct of doing something with passion. That if you just get up every day and you're like, what can I do today that makes me the most money? You might limit yourself. And if you do the things that you love and are good at and you develop Kung Fu, you know, skill from, you know, the acquisition of skill through long practice, you, you can make a living regardless. So that, that's where I'm at. Well, that, that definitely so, sounds wonderful, and I, I'm so glad that you are here tonight. It's so yeah. wonderful to talk to you. It's always great to have you, know, you on the show. Talking to you, I sound like a, I sound like Tony Robbins. I sound like a motivational <laughs> speaker. We always, because you're such a, a cool cat, we always get onto this kind of like philosophical uh, trend. But I'm, I'm really happy to talk about that because I think that you know, uh, in, inevitably, as a writer, as a filmmaker. As a Buddhist, as a martial artist, you do end up, perhaps more than other people, um, looking at aspects of the big picture of the major questions of life and examining them. You know, and just as a writer alone, you would be doing that. So it's it's natural, I guess, if we have a conversation, we would talk about that. I mean, I guess if I was a Formula One driver, we would just be talking about how fast I can go around the track, and that would kind of be it. You know what I mean? Right, and, and here it is. Here it is now. We're we're on a we're on such an or, organic thing with the way that the show always tends to go because there's always so yeah, much to totally. talk about. So it's it's yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's great. I mean, I'm already looking forward to the next time you're going to be on because by the time you're totally. on again, your other film, your film will probably yes. be out, and you. These movies uh, will be out. We have a yeah. We have a sequel to Lady Detective Shadow just out at the AFM, which is the swordplay film. We have a sequel to that. We already shot that we haven't released yet. Um, and then there's actually from the beginning of the year a psychological thriller called Five Element Killer, which we we shot and haven't released yet. And then um, we'll have Loser is the winner. And then at the end of the year we've got a psychological thriller called Face to Face, which um, my partner wrote, which is a wonderful idea, and I think it'll be a great movie here, and I think it also can be a great remake. In Hollywood, and then um, looking towards next year, I mean, what the next run of movies are going to be, and what I, what I would like to do, um, which we haven't done yet, is to do a period, full-on kung fu movie, maybe a a remake uh, of the fi- a, a remake of um, a remake of Five Deadly Venoms. <laughs> you know what's funny? I've been involved with that a bunch of times in the past, and we never came together. It's one of those projects. I mean, I, I and I was briefly approached, wow, probably about a year and a bit ago, by the reconfigured Shaw Brothers Celestial, because they were developing films. And um, I don't know why. I mean, it, just, it kind of faded away. But there was a point when they were talking to me about doing stuff, and that was one of the projects that they had in mind. They had a bunch of other stuff in mind. And I'm I'm kind of surprised that they have such a rich legacy of characters um, that they have not been better, you know, kind of served in terms of remakes and in terms of doing other work. But Five Deadly Venoms, I mean, it's such an obvious thing. I, I'm surprised that no one has put something together. I mean, you could almost do it by any other name, you know, 
like we did with Lady. I mean, I had been told that Bloodsport was out of copyright. So the original title for that movie that you much revere was Lady Bloodsport. And then when we got the cease and desist from, uh, I think it's Ed Pressman has the rights to Bloodsport. Um, we changed it to Lady Blood Fight and, you know, the rest is history. But it was like, you know, you could remake Five Deadly Venoms by any other name. And I'm, I'm surprised no one's. Actually, I think my friend Bobby Samuels is working on that now. So somebody is doing it. But I think that's going to be the genuine one. That's not by any other name. I think he's actually going to do Five Deadly Venoms. Oh, wow. So uh, so it will it will come to pass. But if I if I re if I remade him a, a Shaw Brothers movie, I would love to remake as a film Heroes of the East. Jung Wah Jung. Yes. Oh where, my God. Uh, Wonderful uh, film. I think that would be good. We were going to do that one time. Uh, it was before Donnie had done Yip Man, and he and I were pitching the head of Celestial, which had inherited the Shaw's library, and uh, couldn't get it together at that time. But I still think the the biggest flaw probably in Chinese cinema right now is the the scripts to me generally do not work you know, intrinsically unto themselves as a piece of cinema. I love Chinese films. I love films in Chinese. I don't think the scripts are as good as they used to be. Uh, And definitely they don't work internationally because it's been a long time since a Chinese film has had any kind of traction globally. Maybe the last one was The Grandmaster. Um, And I think if you go back and look at the structure of the old Shaw Brothers films, there was such, Run Run Shaw had such discipline much like an old studio Hollywood mogul in terms of how he made films. You could make any number of those films, even relatively obscure films. You could redo them as a Mad Max kind of film. You could redo them as a, uh, as, as a contemporary film. And I'm surprised no one's done that. I've talk, they've been talking about it. They talk about it forever. I mean, there was, there was talk about doing a new remake of like one arm swordsman, one arm boxer. Avenging Eagle. Okay, wait. Uh, besides the besides the to- besides the Toy Hawk remake that he had do- he had done in the early two thousands, they won't. Yeah, Blade, They want to yeah. do a new. They want to do a new. These, these these were international films. I mean, there was talk. I remember when I was at Media Asia, there was a script for an urban remake of One Arm Boxer, and he was like a teacher in an urban school, um, and then loses his arm, and then trains up and takes on the other guy. Take it's a bit like. Bad day at Black Rock meets One Arm Boxer, but that again, I, I don't know quite why they haven't worked. Um, there was a script for Avenging Eagle, which is kind of like when you look at it now, it was kind of similar to Fury Road, perhaps. Maybe that's why. But I don't know why. Just it, I, I think something falls apart in the development process. My friend Kirk Wong had a take on Five Deadly Venoms back when I was working with Maggie Q. We had a company together. We were involved with that one. Ah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know what? Maybe talking to you now, the answer is I, I need to be more active in that area and you know see what can be done. Uh, so uh, we'll see. But I definitely think there's a lot of gold in Nandar Hills. You know, we could actually go back and look at not just Shore Brothers, but the library of the old classic films. There's a lot of films with terrific potential to remake. And, well, you know, we, I like, for example, I was surprised when they went and remade... Uh, a better tomorrow and just called it a better tomorrow 2018 and they remade it and, and it was so it was one of the most self-aware chinese films yeah. i'd ever seen in my life and I, I thought about it and i kept scratching my head and i said but there's so much that you could do with that story in the modern era mm. 
I couldn't understand well, you know, what I, I couldn't understand uh, what the direction was. But you know, I mean, I think a better tomorrow. Uh, Ying Hong Bunstead was itself a remake of a black and white yes. film story of a yes, the prisoner, story of the discharged prisoner. Yeah. So it was itself a remake, and also it was inspired by um, some uh, Japanese movies that John Woo liked a lot. And I do think that there's um, there's two ways to go with remakes. One is that you uh, you kind of like are overly reverential of the original material so that it yeah. feels like, you know, yeah. well, I mean, the, the, the most obvious example of this would be Gus Van Zandt's remake of Psycho. And you just think, wow, okay, well, that was Psycho in color. Shot for I mean, shot. Exactly. Pretty much <laughs> shot for shot, the same movie. Why would you do that? I would think a better example would be where you had um, True Grit, where you kind of really took the characters to a more extreme place because you could make now you can make a different film than they did with the John Wayne version. And I, I actually like the Jeff Bridges version more than the John Wayne film. Um, so when you actually remake something and you go, OK, now we can really uh, I mean, it was a famous line of John Houston when he said, you know, why? Why do we always remake the great movies? Why not remake the bad ones till we get them right? Um, I mean, in that in that regard, a film I did called The Borderland which I am very proud of, is like a remake of my earlier film, The Blood Bond, which I felt we didn't do a great job with. So it's like, you know, you remake a bad movie till you get it right. And uh, I'm not saying that True Grit was a bad film, the first one, because it won Oscars and everything. I just think the second movie was a better film. So I think, you know what, there's two act there's two aspects to it. And I think that the, the more uh, rewarding one is you take the source material and you look at the potential of the inherent uh, story and the inherent, the inherent, uh, you know, kind of like intellectual property. And you think, what were they not able to do with it back when they made the first film and then kind of do that now? And I don't think they did that with The Better Tomorrow. I'm not quite sure what you could have done with The Better Tomorrow in that respect. But certainly there are classic films in uh, in, in film history where you think, the, the source material, you could take that and run with it and do something different and better um, than had been done before, which you should always want to do something better, shouldn't you? Not just, you know, kind of like uh, pay homage to a film that's been done before. But remakes are great because you can actually, you know, you, you go back to something that's proven the structure works. If you have structure, it cures all ills. So you have something that structurally works. And you go, okay, within that structure, what can we do to enhance the experience? Yeah, and I, I think that in that in that case, like, because when you were talking about a lot of these other movies, and when you know, and when I mentioned you know Five Deadly Venoms, I, I look at that and I say, I think that that movie would be perfect for a remake. And then I look at something like, for example, the reason I brought up a Better Tomorrow was because of the fact that that had gotten a remake. There was a Korean remake of that yeah. that was that yeah. was done, and it was it was done. In my opinion, it was done fairly well. I thought they did a good job yeah. with that one. But then I, I when I looked at this one, I, I thought to myself, I said, "Well, why make it so? Why make a self-aware movie based on material I mean, my, that is my, my so?" Problem, yeah, my, <laughs> my problem with something like that is, I mean, I give an example: the, the Denzel Washington version of the Manchurian Candidate. Right. Where you just go, why, why would you devote 
90 minutes of that or the, the Alec Baldwin version of The Getaway. I mean, when the Steve McQueen version is available, when the masterful Frank Sinatra version of Manchurian Candidate is available, why are you, what's, what's bringing you to this film? Right. I mean, it was like when they remade La Femme Nikita, you know, with, uh, yes. uh you know, Bridget Fonda. <laughs> and you just go, why, why, why would you, other than the fact the film's in English, um, why would you, uh, why would you go? But it's interesting because it, it, that's, that's generally the case. If you, if you, if you, if you just do a, a fairly pedestrian remake of a movie, the sense is like, Hey guys, you can watch the original. Why, why bother with this one? The, 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 the reverse of that was interesting. Um, when The Departed, which was the big remake of the big remake that worked, of course, the of, international the remake, remake. <laughs> right, which, which made all that, won the Oscars and made all that money. When uh, I was a, with Dragon Dynasty, the DVD label at the time, and we had the rights to Infernal Affairs one, two, and three, which is kind of funny because I'm actually in Infernal Affairs two as an actor. I play uh, a policeman in that movie. So anyway, so we had those movies. Um, on DVD and right after the, um, we, we had the, uh, they won the Oscars for The Departed. Um, we brought out a box set of the three films and on the cover blazoned was the film that inspired the Oscar winning The Departed. We thought, wow, people are going to love this. And it just laid an egg. People looked at the box and they went, I can watch this movie in English directed by Martin Scorsese with Jack Nicholson and Leonardo DiCaprio and whoever else was in that movie. Why am I bothering to watch this film with subtitles, Chinese, try to decipher what's been going on, you know, rather because, than... Because it's uh, better, yeah. it's the original, and there's three of them. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I agree. I agree. I think there definitely is a sense, the fact that, you know, you can, if you do a remake with the impact of The Departed, you run the risk of diminishing the potential of the original films. If you make a uh, a kind of blah remake, then I don't think you can diminish the original film, but you do make people realize how good the original was. You know, it's oh, like yeah. if you if you oh, wanted yeah. if you want if you want to know how good you know uh, if you wanted to know how good a bed I mean, tomorrow is a bad example because I, I agree with you. I think the remake was legitimate, but I mean there are remakes that are done in Hollywood. Maybe I shouldn't say which ones, but where, where you look at them and you just go, if you want to know how good the original was, take a look at this, right? And then you, you appreciate how well the first one was made by how badly they messed up the remake. So, um, yeah, but I definitely, I, I'm, I think there's a lot to be said for that dictum where you find something, I mean, Five Deadly Venoms is a good example, a brilliant concept, somewhat flawed in its execution, but that has caught the imagination of the public. And you say, great, we'll take that and really deliver on the potential of the, of the property this time around. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know what's funny? It's like talking to you now. I'm always like, I would say, uh, well, I guess why has no one done that? And then you just stop and think, hey, why haven't I, they done that? Because yeah, this becomes a good question. But as I said, I think Bobby Samuels is doing it. Now, I actually volunteered my services and so maybe I'll work with Bobby on the film. But he was working with uh, Luke Fong, Lu Feng, who was in the movie, um, seems to have moved to America now. He's he's every time I look online, he's somewhere in America with this new museum of Shaw Brothers and working on films with Bobby. So he may be the linchpin to do some kind of uh, remake. 
Oh wow, that's we, that sounds that sounds awesome. We're we're getting towards the end of the show now because we we've talked about we've talked about remakes. So now we're so now we're there. We're almost towards the end. That's a good that's a good spot to be. That's a good spot to kind of stop. There should be a new word, which is a remake and a demake. A demake is when you actually do the film again and you mess it up. And a remake yeah, and is when you actually do the film just again. Like, and it, it just like, um, have you ever heard of a word a word now to describe a sequel that removes uh, other sequels that were in continuity, but they don't want those sequels in continuity anymore? I heard this word what, what uh, not too long ago. They call it a requel. And I had heard that <laughs> I had heard like that when I was. <laughs> I, yeah. I had heard. So I had the heard predator, that. But, uh, the predator is like a yeah, requel, right? It's like a requel, or or like the new or like the new Halloween movie is a requel because it's a direct and the new sequel, Terminator. right? Yeah, a direct sequel right? to the a direct sequel to the very first film, just pretending like yeah. none of the other sequels ever happened, creating their wow. own content, creating their own continuity. Somebody should have done that with Highlander. But anyway, oh, that would yeah, that would be that would be uh, that's definitely yeah. something I could see them doing at some point. All right, man. Well, listen, it's been a real blast talking to you, and uh, you know, I always feel we cover a lot of ground, and there's still a lot more to talk about. So we'll catch up again. I'll bring yes, you up we to will. Speed on all the other adventures in the wild world of Bay. <laughs> and one, now once again, now once again, before you leave, can you give out your website to the listeners here so that yes, they can know please. where to go to get all of this yes, great the stuff? Best way to contact me. The best way to uh, support our many ventures is please go to www.realeast.com. That's R-E-E-L-E-A-S-T.com. And on there you have my books. You have Genuine Martial Arts Movie Memorabilia from the Golden Days of uh, Kung Fu Cinema. You have my commentaries. And you can reach out to me directly. I promise I will reply as best I can. And um, that's like something I've been doing in the last year between films, like this one-stop shop for Kung Fu Multimedia Entertainment. So check out com, please. And don't fail to uh, check out every new installment of the Azod Writer podcast, the best in the business. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to be looking forward to more of your stuff, Bay. It's always a pleasure to Thank have you. you. Thank appreciate you so much it. for being Thank here. You. And I, we will talk again. All right, my man. Have a great totally. night. Take care now. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Bay Logan for the, I believe, third or fourth time that he's been a guest on the Zod Rider Show. It was a wonderful show. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, I will be back with another show, possibly next week. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But you know what? You've been listening to psn-radio.com. Uh, stay tuned for more exciting programming on PSN. Good night, everyone.